Go ahead and uh, grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be looking at one verse this morning, and we're going to be looking at a broad topic this morning, the topic of being a surrendered people. I was 15 years old, and um, it was the summertime. School had just ended. It was beautiful outside, and uh, my childhood best friend and I decided, by the way, childhood best friend who is actually an elder of this church who will remain nameless for the purpose of his own protection. His name rhymes with bat, but other than that, I'm not going to get anything else, Okay. We decided uh, that we were going to camp out in the backyard of my house. My parents backed onto a, a major road, a street behind us. Uh, we'd done this often. It was something we did uh, for fun. We enjoyed it. We had this night all planned out. Uh, we knew the rules. The rules were um, you get into the tent, and after kind of a certain time, 10 o'clock, you know, you're staying in the tent, that's it, unless you got to come inside, you know, for food or a bathroom break, whatever it is, but you're staying in the tent. We knew the rules. My parents had laid them out clearly. We knew what we would forfeit um, if we violated the rules. And yet, and yet, we determined that we were going to do things our way. We had come up with a bit of a plan. We were going to sneak out when my parents were asleep. They're here. They know this story. We were going to wait till they were asleep, and we had planned to go up to the corner store. We didn't have anything truly mischievous planned or anything like that, but we, we knew we weren't supposed to do this. We were going to go up to the store, and we were going to say hi to some friends and then sneak back into the tent. But already in that moment, knowing we had planned this out, my conscience was convicting me. Decided to go through with it anyways, and so, you know, we zipped the tent up. It's midnight. It's pitch black out. We begin to hop my back fence we're straddling the fence, my parents' house, the road beside us. And in that moment, knowing what we were doing was wrong, a police car drives by. We are sitting on the fence watching the police car, our hearts beginning to pound in our chest, and the car just keeps driving, and we think, whew, that was close, until the cop does a U.E. We had hopped down at this point, standing on the sidewalk, beginning to walk up to the corner store. The cop pulls right up beside us, hops out of the car, asks us very politely what we're doing. We explain to him that we're simply going up to the corner store. We're camping out in the backyard. He checks the scene out with the flashlight. He proceeds to ask us to put our hands on the hood of the car, uh, to frisk us, to make sure we're not some thieves stealing some things or something like that. We're convinced that he believes our story and we find out that he does indeed believe our story. And so he decides to put us in the back of the cop car, drive us around to the front of my parents' home, and ring the doorbell at 12 o'clock at night, multiple times, until my mom, half asleep, comes to the door, and the officer says, uh, ma'am, is, is this your child? Now at this point, I'm half expecting her to say, officer, I've never seen this child in my life. <laughs> She, of course, says, yes, yes, officer, one of these is my son. <laughs> and then, uh, as parents often do, um, the discipline and the consequences don't come in the moment. They love to let that linger. Don't you love to do that with your kids? Like, I'm not, you know, just, just, just sit on your conscience for a little while. They let us go back into the tent where we can't sleep all night, parent, or at least I couldn't sleep all night. You say, what's the moral of the story? Kids, this is really important, okay? Listen, kids, any kids in here? Listen, look right here. Obey your parents, or God will have you arrested. 
kidding, not kidding, okay? Like, okay, just parents, you can sort that out later. <laughs> In that moment, listen, God was reminding me of something incredibly important for the good of my life, not just in that moment, but for the very future of my life. He was reminding me, listen, that I was a human being who was under authority. And that as someone who is under authority, I would do well to listen to authority, to surrender to authority. And yet what's so fascinating, isn't it true? Listen, there's a part of us that knows and embraces this idea of authority, and then a part of us in our sinful nature that is constantly resisting authority. We're constantly bucking against authority. We struggle and we live in this tension of authority and surrender. We've talked about this idea of authority over the past few weeks as we've been in this series called The Church, as we've been looking at and studying God's understanding and desire and design for the church. And we've talked about this concept of authority pretty much every single week, that Jesus is the king who has supreme authority over the church, that the church itself is an embassy of the kingdom uh, in which he has delegated his authority. And what we're gonna see both this week And next week is that there are some that God calls in the church to exercise a certain degree of authority for the good of the whole and on behalf of the king. We're going to look at what it means to be the church that is surrendered. The passage that we're looking at this morning identifies that there are some in the church that are called out to be leaders, to exercise a degree of authority. It's one simple verse, let's simply read it together, and then I want to unpack it, but broaden it a little bit in our minds as well. Verse 17, the author of Hebrews writes these words, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It's easy to read this and gloss over what this is telling us about, what this is really teaching us. In a broader sense, this is reminding us that we are all people who are called to be under authority, that we are called to surrender to authority. The problem is that we live in a culture that is hyper-individualistic, that loves to resist authority, and that kind of thinking and mentality has creeped into all of our lives in some way, shape, or form. It's certainly begun to creep into the life of the church. There are many within the church who resist this idea of authority itself. And so what I want to do, I want to begin by launching from this verse to kind of paint a bigger picture of authority. Where does it come from exactly? What is it grounded in? Why is it necessary I want to begin by by just laying this simple point out for you, the biblical nature of authority, divine. That in one word sums up the foundational roots of authority. It is divine in nature. It is not just from God, it is an expression of God. This passage makes this assumption, by the way, about our recognition and acceptance of authority. It implies that that we actually embrace this concept of authority. It assumes that we agree with the nature of authority. 
that we believe that authority in and of itself is something that is right and good and actually necessary. But in a sense, it's also combating some resistance to the idea, the very idea that the author of Hebrews has to write these words telling people in the church that they have to do this, they, they must submit and obey the leaders. It tells us something that there are people even within the church at the time this is written who were resisting this idea who didn't believe or buy into maybe this idea, at least in the fullest sense. They are at the very least making it difficult on those who are called by God to lead the church of God on his behalf. And so God wants to be very clear that authority is something that is good and right and necessary. And so this text teaches us both by by instruction explicitly and by implication that the authority is something that we need. It's essential to the health and the life, not just of individual believers, but the health and life of the church as a whole, as as a group, uh, as a living organism, as an institution. But we do need to then step back and ask this question, well, where does authority come from? Three things that help us kind of unpack the biblical nature of authority as being divine. First, notice this, and my hope here, listen, my hope is to kind of combat maybe some of the thinking of the world that we hear or some of the thinking of the world that's even crept into the church. First of all, authority is a design of God, not man. It's a design of God, not man. There are people um, who believe that structure and hierarchy and authority is simply the invention of humanity. It's something that is functional or it's something that is used and abused simply to gain power over others. It's easy to think that hierarchy and structure and authority are simply the invention of man. It's pumped at us from our culture. But that is to give humanity far too much credit. To believe that humanity is responsible for this kind of authority, for structure, for organization. Hierarchy at its base roots is a result of God. In fact, it is a divine reflection of God, not human invention. In fact, keep your hand in Hebrews 13 and just flip to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. In the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, specifically in verse 6, we see a little bit of a, a picture painted of God's design in the created order the establishment of both authority and hierarchy and structure. It says in verse five, now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and he quotes the Old Testament, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. There's hierarchy. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. There's authority. Now, I I don't want to unpack all of that. I just simply want to show you that even in this very book that we're talking about, here the idea of authority and structure is something that is attributed to God. It is given to humanity intending to reflect divinity. And by the way, all you have to do to really grapple with this is go back to the very first chapter of the Bible. We see right out the gates that authority and structure are something that God has woven into the very fabric of creation. In the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. 
that sentence in and of itself tells us something of authority. There's only one who can create all things from nothing, the one who holds supreme power and authority. Throughout the creation account, we see God bringing things into creation, establishing order, establishing structure, a hierarchy even of created beings. You can think of it kind of like this. Authority exists because God exists. Authority wasn't even something created by God. God is, in one sense, by definition, capital A, authority. It's who he is. It's a part of his nature and his being. God can never not be authority. He is the supreme ruler of the universe. He is the king who is seated on the throne. He is the one who sovereignly controls all things according to his will. The reason that authority is necessary in our world is because our world reflects the God who made it. God wants us to understand that he is authority. And so authority is built into the institutions of society and of humanity itself. Humanity is ultimately, as the word of God tells us, created in the image of God. God God calls humanity right out the gates to do some very important things that establish, again, human authority. He calls Adam and Eve to take dominion. That's authority language. To work and to keep the garden, to tame the garden and to expand the garden, the beauty and the glory of God. Adam and Eve are called, listen, to exercise authority over creation on behalf of God. They're called to name the animals, another right of authority. They're called to have children. Again, establishing of authority, procreate, again, creation pointing us to this idea of authority. The fifth commandment itself, children are to honor their father and mother, establishes this idea of authority in the institutions of humanity. Right from the family structure on, the family structure, by the way, was the first government, it was the first Everything, the first society, everything was established right there in the first family unit, and God imprints this authority and this structure right into the fabric of human society. Government, marriage, family, society, all of it points us to this idea of authority, and authority exists because God exists. Secondly, and this follows necessarily that Authority is a necessary good, not evil. In our world today, you'll hear people talk a lot about the problem of authority, and and I wholeheartedly admit there is a problem with lots of forms of authority and uses of authority. Undoubtedly, that is true, but it would be wrong to throw the baby out with the bathwater and not think a little bit more deeply about this. If it is true that God is authority, then authority, listen, is not simply something that is morally neutral. It is actually something that is morally good because God himself is morally good. And let me just qualify this just over the top. I understand, listen, why there is a reaction to authority in the world. I know, I know that some of you in here are reacting even in your hearts right now to this idea of authority. You struggle with the concept of authority, whether it's society, government, culture, uh, home, or church. Listen, I, I understand that some of you in here have been really wounded by people in authority. I know that. I know that's true. 
I know that you've been wounded by parents who were supposed to exercise loving authority and care over your life. I know that some of you have been wounded by a spouse who was supposed to exercise loving, caring authority for you and for your good and your well-being. I know that some of you, listen, have been wounded deeply by people in authority in the church. I know that. And for some of you, it's really hard to wrap your mind around this idea that authority is something that's good. Like, how can it be good? Look, look at what those in authority have done to me. The danger, again, would be to dismiss the good intention of authority and the goodness of authority itself because of the sinful abuse of authority. You see, authority isn't the problem. Sin is. Sin is the problem. Sin is what helps people abuse authority and use authority to oppress others. But when we look to the word of God, the authority of God is good and loving. It is always right and true and best and beautiful. It always glorifies him and brings good to those under the authority. Authority is a necessary good for the good of society. It is the authorization that we have from God to create and give order to life. Again, back to Genesis, right? This is what the authority God gave Adam and Eve was intended to do, to create and to, to give order to life. And in a very real sense, every human being has been endowed with authority from God. Do you realize that? As someone who's made in the image of God, it doesn't matter your position of life, doesn't matter whether you're married or not or have children, you actually have been given to uh, authority from God to actually reflect and image God to the world around you. Listen, it, it could be as simple as having authority over the thoughts of your head or the hairs of your head. For some of you, that's harder than others. But to be human, according to Genesis 1, is to rule something. And without authority, we would have anarchy. That's why it's so precious to us. Everybody would simply do what was right in their own eyes. Divine authority and order not only reflect God, but it protects humanity. It protects what God loves and cares about in the creation that he has called good. Thirdly, notice this, that authority is a critical help, not a hindrance. Again, kind of following along the lines of what many in the world would say is that authority simply holds us back. Authority is oppressive and tyrannical. Authority crushes us. It doesn't enable us. Authority pins us down. It doesn't free us up. But even this passage here explicitly highlights the protection and the help that those are, who are in positions of authority are to provide for the church. Notice it again. Just look at it for a second. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. In other words, they're the ones who are helping to protect your soul. And the idea of soul there speaks to your spiritual well-being, your spiritual growth and development, protecting you from sin, keeping you walking in accordance with the principles of God's word, helping you love and adore and worship God more, helping you rid the life of the idols that will destroy you in the end. You see, this is the, the good that the leaders and the authority that God has put in your life is supposed to be doing and the thing that you're supposed to be embracing. Jonathan Lehman says this, that authority justly used in the fear of God is like the sun nourishing the grass and causing it to grow. It creates life. It authors growth. Authority, in general, was to help humanity fulfill their God-given function. 
And we all function best when we recognize and respect the authorities in our lives. Every parent understands this when they look at their rebellious children. First and foremost, God's good authority over us needs to be welcomed. In the church especially, we looked at this a few weeks back, but in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus establishes the church based on his own authority and delegating that authority unto the church, the apostles in particular, and by extension, the rest of the church and the leaders in the church. Jesus says this in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. God has given the church authority But within the church, he has called some to lead for the good of the whole, to advance our maturity as individuals. But listen, this is really important as we talk about the church, to advance the mission of the church, to reach the nations with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is the vehicle, the institution that God has created to manifest his glory and declare the hope of redemption and salvation in the name of Jesus. This right here, the gathered body of believers, is what God has designed to use. Now, we function in the most healthy way when we understand authority and surrender. When we get this into our hearts and minds and we see how God has designed this to move forward and to advance his cause in the world around us, we too will flourish greatly. Secondly, notice this, the prideful resistance to authority. See, all that sounds really, really good, and all of that maybe in theory sounds fantastic, and man, yeah, I can see how this is possible, but here's our propensity, the prideful resistance to authority, reject. Like, no thanks, God. Authority, no, I don't need to submit to that. I don't need to surrender to authority. I feel like this is the mantra of our culture right now. Authority is mocked, belittled, dismissed, outright rejected. In our fallen condition, we naturally resist and reject authority. Here again in this passage, it implies that this was happening. Again, the call is to obey and to submit to the leaders. You don't have to say that if people are actually doing it. It's a struggle in every human heart to submit to authority. It is most certainly a mark of our sinful hearts, of our hearts that have been corrupted by the power of sin. It seeps into our church. It seeps into our lives. It bleeds from the culture all over us. There's two specific ways that I think we see our prideful resistance to authority that I just want to draw attention to. There's lots of ways we could identify this, but I I chose kind of two words to help us maybe see this in our own hearts and maybe to help fight against this in the life of the church, to resist this and to reject this itself. The first one is autonomy. Autonomy. One of the ways we reject authority in our lives is by fighting for increased autonomy. Autonomy is anti-authority in nature. It is the rejection wholesale of authority. It's the leave me alone mentality. I'm fine by myself. I don't need anybody over me. I don't need anybody telling me what to do. I'm in control of my own life. Thank you very much. Personal autonomy, I think, is, is king in our culture. And the person who embraces and loves autonomy is not really actually a person that rejects authority they ultimately reject the authority of God and of others, but in fact, they love the idea of authority. 
so long as they are the authority. For many, people look at autonomy as freedom, free from any kind of constraints, freedom from any kind of restrictions, any kind of parameters, anybody telling me what I can or can't do. For them, they look at freedom and autonomy, and for them, it's the freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with whoever they want. Freedom, for many, is the removal, again, of all parameters, but along with that is the removal of any form of accountability. Someone who fights for autonomy would say, I am not free unless there are no restrictions. The problem is, this is not the biblical definition of freedom. To be free, according to the Bible, you actually must be free from autonomy. To be free, according to the Bible, you must recognize authority. True freedom is functioning within your God-given parameters and purpose. To be truly free is to be and do what God has made you to be and do. Biblically speaking, autonomy is what leads to death. Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden was a battle for personal autonomy. It was a rejection of authority. That was the appeal and the temptation of Satan to Adam and Eve. You can be like God. You can be free from his authority over your life. You can be an authority unto yourself. The problem is what they gave up was true and right authority, and what they gained was not autonomy, but oppressive dictatorial authority over them. Sin, ruling over them. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the king of this fallen world. You see, true freedom is not found in rejecting authority, but instead in respecting authority. Resistance to authority naturally leads to a resistance, by the way, of hierarchy and of structure. There are people who, who say, listen, if I'm going to be autonomous, I have to then kind of throw away any kind of institutional mentality, any kind of an organizational structure or hierarchy is a burden uh, against my autonomy. It infringes upon my personal autonomy. So therefore, institutions themselves and, and organizations, they too must be evil and done away with. That leads us into this, this second idea. Autonomy naturally leads into anti-institutionalism. Now, for sure, in the book of Hebrews here, there was maybe an autonomous desire that had crept into the lives of some in the church. They simply didn't want to submit to the leadership of the church. I'm not sure there's an anti-institutional mentality, but we do know this. There were some in the church who were neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, the author says, there were some who were beginning to see, you know what, of this gathering together, the, the, the institution of the church, it's not something that I really need all that much in my life. Anti-institutionalism comes, I think, in at least two different forms. The first one is a flagrant anti-institutionalism. It's a full-on rejection of the idea that institutions are, are good, right, necessary. There are some, actually, who want to even argue that, that an institutional church is actually unbiblical. They look at the church and they emphasize the universal church, the idea that we're all a part of the church, you know, a capital C church. We're all members of the family of God, which is absolutely true. But they overemphasize that and neglect the small C church, that God calls us all into the larger church, but he places us then into local expressions of the church. 
churches that meet together as organized assemblies, that practice certain things, that have a certain kind of structure. They're driven by the authority of the Word of God, bound by a set of principles, a community of faith that is living for the name and sake of Jesus Christ. Here in this passage, the very existence of leaders implies the existence of an institution. This idea of an institutional church shouldn't be much of a surprise to you. I know there are many who push against it. Many even Christians push against this idea. I've talked to many of them. But the word of God is very clear that the church is an institution. It is an organism, yes, that is living and developing and growing, but it is also an organization. That's why books like 1 Timothy are written, to give structure and order to the church. Paul writes to Timothy, a pastor in the church, and he helps him identify how you structure the church, who should be in positions of leadership, how the leaders are supposed to lead, what the church is supposed to do and be. He tells Titus, another associate of his, to go into Crete and to appoint elders in each of the churches, identifying again different local churches. The the letters in the New Testament are written to local churches, to the church in this city, the church in that city. This idea of an institutional church is is a normal concept and has been throughout the, the history of the church. All the way from the Garden of Eden, by the way, to the New Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelation, what we see is that God has always provided a structure for his people. There are many who believe that the church and leadership and structure in general and buildings, by the way, are the problem. They look at that and see that's the problem with the church. Granted, again, people have abused the concept of the church. They have misused it. They have made it something that it should not be. That's kind of why we're doing this series, to make sure that we are aligned with the word of God and our understanding of the church. It's not uncommon for people to say, you know what, I don't need the church. I've heard this so many times. I don't need the church. I, I'm, I'm already part of the church. I got the church. And they'll, do, they'll quote like Matthew 18, you know, right, where two or three are gathered. The Lord is there with us. If you were here last week, you should be well-equipped by now to say, that's not what that's talking about. In fact, Matthew 18 is given in the context of a local church. This is how you operate in a local church when sin is present. This is how you deal with sin. This is how you purge sin from your midst. This is how you restore a sinning brother. There are people who who will say, just flat out, just overtly, I can do church whenever I want, however I want, with whomever I want. I don't need to go to church on a Sunday. And I believe many of these people, by the way, are well-meaning. They're well-meaning, but in many ways they're misinformed. Or they're overreacting. They're overreacting to, again, the abuses of the church, the abuses of leadership. They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And the goal is to then kind of come back to the word of God and ask, what does the word of God say about the church? What is it supposed to be? What is it supposed to look like? I mean, can you just take that idea of, of, of just, uh, you know, if, if that's even you today, believing, you know, I don't need the church. I can do church when I want, whoever I want. Me and my friends sitting in my living room on a Tuesday night, that's church. Can you imagine walking up to your employer and saying, hey, I know I work for you. I know this is my job, but you know what? I don't really need you. I'm going to work whenever I want, however I want. I'm going to do whatever I like. And by the way, me and you, we're good. That's what people want to say. Me and God are good. I'll do church my way. Me and God are fine. 
Imagine your child walking up to you. I mean, you got young. Can you imagine your kid walking up to you? I mean, just picture your four-year-old walking up to you. Hey, mom and dad, I just want to let you know, I don't need you. Uh, I know I'm part of this family, but I don't really need you. I'm going to live however I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm going to watch whatever I want, whenever I want. Some of you are like, that's my life. Were you, were you at my house this week? <laughs> and by the way, mom and dad, me and you, we're good. Fist bump. <laughs> like the first situation, you're like, oh, um, okay, well, you're fired. The second situation, you're like, okay, you're dead meat. Some people in this category, they say, but you know what? No, God is my authority. He, he is my authority, even though I'm not a part of the church. God's my authority for sure. I, I believe that. Listen, listen, then why don't you just consider for a second Luke 6, 46, which Jesus says like this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Am I really your authority? If I'm your authority, then you, you need to actually listen to me and actually do what I say. And listen, it is Jesus who established the church. It is Jesus who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is Jesus who gave the apostles to the church. It is Jesus who sent his spirit to fill the church and grow the church. It is Jesus through his inspired word through the work of the apostles who says, listen, that the gifts of leadership have actually been given to the church for the building up of the body of Christ, for the maturing of the saints. It is Jesus' idea. So here's just what you need to see in that. Listen, if you're like, I'm, I'm good with God's authority over me, but I'm not good with the church, what you're saying is you will not listen and believe and obey what Jesus, the one who's supposed to be your authority, is telling you he says about the church. Institutions are not evil. They are a good given from God. All institutions that have been given by God, whether they be government, I know that's hard to believe sometimes. Romans 13, one and two. Marriage, another institution given by God before the fall, right? For the flourishing of humanity, for the good, which by the way, Paul talks about in Ephesians four and Colossians chapter three, giving uh, this idea of authority in the marriage relationship for the flourishing of that relationship. Parents, right, the fifth commandment, right, authority necessary for the health of the child, the good of the institution of the family, and the church, listen, the church that is called the family of God. How can we say we agree that God has given these institutions, but when these institutions, by the way, are all used as parallels for the church of Jesus Christ, we can throw it out the window and say, no, that doesn't apply here. It makes no sense. Christians are marked, listen, by not only their recognition of institutions, but their willingness to adhere to the God-given authority structure within them. If you reject the institutional church, you are not, sorry, you and God, by the way, are not good you say, no, but I love the church. Well, no, you, you love a version of the church that you have created. You're in that sense just like a, a spouse who is anti-marriage or a child who is anti-family or a citizen who is anti-government. Now, most of you, I believe in this room, are shaking your heads like, yes, I agree with this. Ian, you're preaching in the choir. Like, why are we talking about this? We're, we're here, right? We show up every Sunday. 
Can I just encourage you to be careful before you jump to that conclusion too quickly in your own mind that you're not falling into this next category, which is a functional anti-institutionalism. There is a flagrant and overt rejection of institutions for sure that is prevalent in certain pockets of Christianity, but I believe more wholesale in the church is a functional anti-institutionalism. It's more subtle resistance to the institution of the church. This is, I believe, where so many Christians live without even realizing this where they live. They embrace the idea of the existence of authority and even of the institutional church, but they pridefully live in stubborn resistance to it. I think that's what the Christians in this passage, many of them were struggling with. Yeah, I get, I get the church. Yeah, I, I know God's given leaders for my good, but I'm really not interested in, in really submitting and surrendering in this way. So how do I know if I'm falling into that camp? How do I know if this is true of my life? I just, I got a few ideas for you that maybe help you think through this and maybe I'm pressing your heart a little bit practically. So just consider this. I'll, I'll throw them up on the screen. Okay, here's the first one. How do I know if this is me, that I am functionally anti-institutional, that I am resisting the institutional church and the work of God in my life through the church? Here's, here's the first way. You're committed but not attending. I know summer's coming. Some of you are like, it's just going away for a few weekends in the summer. It's not what I'm talking about. Committed on paper, you're like, yes, this is my church. You tell people, this is my church. I've, I've had people say, hey, do you know so-and-so at your church? They tell me that this is your church. I'm like, I haven't seen that person in two years. When did they tell you this? Oh, they told me this yesterday. That, that, that's functional, anti-institutional. You're not, you're not really a part. Like, you may think you are, you may say you are, but if you're committed but not attending, that you're not gathering. Like, the idea, the, remember the word church means assembling, gathering. Again, the author of Hebrews says in this same chapter, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. This is a, a continual thing that, that we must practice, being together, submitting in this place to one another, as unto the Lord. Second way, here's a second way. Listen, attending, you're attending, but not involved. You're kind of like a, a spectator. You're like, no, no, this is my church. I go uh, most Sundays. I show up. I mean, I'm there in body and even in some sense in spirit, but I'm not really involved. You say, well, is that really necessary? Yes. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're a part of the body. You are to be used in the body. You are to be serving in the body. You are to be discipled and discipling. Like this is where this happens predominantly, fundamentally. There are some who are attending but not involved. Here's another way you can know that maybe this is you. You're involved but you're not overseen. You're like, oh, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm committed, I'm attending, I'm even serving, but here, but here's, this is what you are. You're a rogue Christian. You're like, yeah, this is my church, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve in this church and do my thing. I, I don't care about the leadership. I'm not going to do what they think I ought to do. I'm not even going to ask their opinion. I'm just going to do my thing. You're, you're, yeah, I'm going to do my own groups. I'm going to do it my own way. I, I'm not even going to ask for counsel, you know, nothing. I'm just going to do it my way. You are resisting, listen, the authority structure of the church that is intended to protect the entire family of God, including you. Here's, here's another way. I just got two more for you. Here's another way. You're overseen, but you're not teachable. It's possible, right? It's possible to have all these things, and you're actually even someone who submitted to the authorities of the church, and you're actually seeking some counsel, but you're not really teachable. You're just kind of going through the motions. 
You're saying you want it. You're saying you want help. You're saying you want counsel. You're saying you want direction and correction. But when somebody gives it to you, the pattern of your life is to say, no. No, I'm not going to do that. In fact, maybe you're the person who says, yeah, I'm submitted to leadership, but really I should be in leadership. They should be coming to me for all the answers. I should be the one doing the counseling here. I should be the one doing the preaching. Step right up. I mean, sadly, there are people with this kind of attitude in the church, the church at large, maybe even in this church. Let me give you one final one. You're teachable, but you're not really listening. And that really bleeds, this previous one bleeds into this one. You just... You're really not interested in what people have to say. You give the appearance of it, but you're just living your life the way you want to live it. You say, well, why is it so important to be able to identify this in my life? Listen, simply put, rejecting God-given authority is ultimately to reject God. It is to resist God in your life, and that never leads anywhere good. Never. God wants you to listen to the authorities He's put in place, because he wants you to thrive and flourish. He wants you to be a part of the institutional church. He wants you involved and committed and teachable. He wants you overseen. He wants it for your good. He wants it for the advancement of the mission of the church. He wants it all. He, he wants to demonstrate to the world that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we, by our response, need to demonstrate that too in here. That's how this works. This is the way God has set it up. And that leads us to finally consider how... We thrive and flourish in God's design when we embrace this final point, the humble response to authority, which is surrender. And here, we really are getting into the meat of this one verse. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And, and I want to start here. Here's, here's why. Before we get into the, the, the submission and obedience piece, what that looks like, what it means, just notice first why. It's, it's, yes, theological, but it's very practical. Did you notice that? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There's two things there that you just have to pay attention to. The, the leaders of the church, you know, you, you may think, you may have maybe rose-colored glasses on when it comes to understanding what the leadership of the church is called to be and do. You may have this glorified picture of what it means to be a leader in the church and how awesome that must be, but you need to understand a couple of things here. One is this, that they are giving watch over your soul, and the implication of the text there is that this is incredibly difficult work. In fact, this is work that can keep you up at night. This is hard, laborious work. It's painful work. It's emotional work. It takes a toll on your spirit, on your heart, on your mind. But, but practically speaking, it's for your own spiritual well-being. We talked about that. You see, they're given the responsibility to the leadership of the church to care for you, not to be dictators over you, but to care for you, to serve you, to help you walk closer with God. That's why the, the church leadership exists. The second reason is, listen, that they will give an account for you. You, you have to understand the weight of this. And, and listen, whether the leader realizes it or not, forgets it or not, it doesn't matter. This is built into spiritual leadership. And it's not just in the church. It's in the home. So if you're sitting here like, how does this apply to me? If you're a father, you have a great degree of accountability before the Lord when it comes to your family, when it comes to your wife. If you're a parent, you have a great deal of authority, mother or father. 
and therefore a great deal of responsibility. You will answer to the Lord for how you led in these ways. And we could look at a variety of different areas in our life, but just consider spiritual leadership for a moment. There is a heightened aspect of accountability here. This is James 3.1, right? You don't be rushing to be a teacher in the church of Jesus Christ because there is a greater condemnation. There's a responsibility that comes with a heightened accountability, and it is to be a fearful thing. It is to cause the leaders to lead well, to lead in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. Next week, we are going to dig deeper into the structure of the church, what it means to be a leader in the church, what it, what it means to be an elder, what it means to be a deacon, what the church's responsibility is in light of the structure that God has given. We're going to kind of pull this apart, the roles, the responsibilities, the qualifications, all of that, so that we rightly understand the nuts and bolts of the, the structure piece that we've been talking about and how we can function in an increasingly healthy way. But for now, we're, we're looking at this, again, this big picture of authority and surrender Leaders are called by God to lead in love and humility. They're going to be accountable to God for that. They're to be Christ-like servant leaders. They're not to lead, the scriptures are clear, for selfish gain. They're not to be domineering over people. God has established institutional structure and boundaries that enable spiritual growth, and he calls certain people to help oversee that, to protect that, to, to enforce that in the best sense of that word. So the call here is a call for Christians to surrender to the rightful authority that God has put in place, ultimately to surrender to Him. And our surrender to Him is made evident in our response to those in authority over us. That's true, by the way, in every human institution, marriage, family, government. This is not just particular and unique to the church. Are the leaders of the church perfect? No. no. Should they pretend to be? No. Are the leaders in the church above correction? No. Will the leaders sin and hurt people, even in good churches? Yes. Are they going to need forgiveness and grace? Absolutely. I sure hope so. Should leaders in the church be accountable? Yes. We'll look more at this next week as well. But look at the responsibility of the body. Look at the response they're to have to the leaders in the church. Two words are given here, obey and submit. These words are not unclear. And let me just quote Charles Hodge here, a theologian. He says this, obedience to legitimate authority is one of the fruits and evidences of Christian sincerity. Now, I need to, to qualify this. This is not unqualified blanket obedience. This is, you know, keep your mouth shut, do whatever they say. That's not what this is talking about. This is not talking about the right to authoritarian oversight into every detail of your life. That happens in some places. That's not what this is talking about. This is not calling you to obey and to submit to anything that would be in contradiction to the Bible or your conscience. This is not a slavish or a blind obedience and submission, but a healthy, respectful, willing obedience and submission as unto the Lord. And let me be the first to say that you, as the people of God, have a responsibility and accountability to God to test everything you hear. 
You have every right to question what you hear from this pulpit. You have every right to question the decisions of the leadership so long as you're doing it in a healthy way. You are not supposed to just accept something I say or anybody else says from any pulpit, whether it's your favorite Bible preacher on the radio or, or YouTube or the favorite author that you read. You're not supposed to just blindly accept everything somebody says just because they're in a position of authority. At the same time, at the same time, listen, there is in this passage a call to eagerly and willingly obey. And, and the word submit is actually a stronger word than the word obey. It, its meaning is to yield and to come under. And it's really reflecting a, a disposition of the heart, a desire and an attitude to sacrifice and to surrender your own way sometimes even for the, for the good of the whole and for the honor and glory of Christ. It's a call to yield yourself to those over you in the Lord who are trying to come alongside you and love you and care for you and shepherd you in wisdom and in truth for the good of your soul. You should delight in obeying and submitting from the heart to that kind of leadership. And I would just encourage you to not be like so many who struggle to grow in their Christian life because, listen, of an, a refusal to submit to the authority, not just of the church, but the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. There are people who will often simply respond when they're told truth. I, I, I don't like being told what to do. Or, uh, you know what, I'll, I'll figure it out on my own, or I'll do it my way. You know, some of you are like, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Like, who would do that? That's crazy. Listen, I have sat across the table from people who would consider themselves to be mature, godly Christians who are struggling with sin in their life and problems in their life, and I've walked them through, and so have other pastors and elders and sisters, walked them through a biblical, biblically grounded process of growth or change and dealing with a sin. I have had people look at me in the eyes and say these very words. I can't argue with anything you said. That is incredibly biblical, but I'm not going to do it. what? You, you mean you agree that this is, we're just simply showing what God says you ought to do in this situation, and you're saying you're not going to do it? And you know, some of you are like, well, you must be really offended by that. I, listen, this, this doesn't offend me. This breaks my heart. This isn't a front against me. This isn't a front against God. This is, this, is like, this is like, you imagine that, looking at Jesus Christ, who's saying to you, let me be very clear what you need to do to follow me. And you look at him and you say, I love you, you're my Lord. And you say, I hear you, it makes perfect sense. I can't disagree with anything you said, but I'm not gonna do it. It's like walking to a doctor because you know, your body is falling apart and you're trying to figure out what's going on and the doctor looks at you and he puts you through all the gamut of tests and he gives you the diagnosis and then he gives you the prescription. He says, you gotta, here's what you gotta do. You gotta take these pills, you gotta eliminate these things from your diet, you gotta implement exercise and before you know it, you're gonna be back on your feet, good and healthy. You look at the doctor and you say, doc, I completely agree with everything you just said, but I'm not gonna do it. Listen, that is the equivalent of choosing death over life. When it is clearly biblical, wise, and helpful, we are called to be a people who obey as unto the Lord. I, myself included in this, by the way. We're called to surrender to the Lord, and by the way, we're called to surrender like the Lord. It's amazing that when we 
think about who modeled this best, this idea of surrender, of obedience. Do you know the person who is identified as the one we ought to look to is Jesus Christ himself? The one that we are supposed to surrender to ultimately gives us the most powerful and beautiful picture of surrender. The one who, as Philippians 2 reminds us, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, who submitted himself completely to the will of the Father. I always do the will of the Father, he said. Not my will be done, but yours. You see, the gospel is this beautiful picture of surrender to the Father for the ultimate good of our souls. Jesus pursued this for the joy set before him. And Paul writes in Philippians 2 verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, we look at the gospel, we look at Jesus Christ surrendering all for us, and that is to be both our greatest motivation and to give us the greatest power to surrender all of ourselves to God. You say, why should I do this? You give me one more reason. All right, here, here, right from the text, look. The leaders are going to give an account for your soul, but look at this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Oh, please let this happen here. For that would be, listen, listen, of no advantage to you. Again, this idea here, this idea of not them doing it with groaning, this isn't just like, ah, oh, grumbling on all these people, they never listen. That's not it. It's a heavy-heartedness. It's a, it's a mourning idea. Like, let them do it without having to mourn the weight of this. You know, you know what it's like to watch a child go off the rails and pursue a life of sin? Do you know, you know that feeling? You know that feeling you're not just like, ah, oh, this kid, he just doesn't listen. You know the feeling watching your child ruin their life? That's, that's the implication here. Let them mourn the pain of watching people walking in foolishness and sin and not listening, not asking, not pursuing, not pulling in, destroying their lives. This is burdens, it's heavy. And so he's saying, listen, let them do this with joy. Let them experience the joy of watching you follow the Lord. Not follow them so much, follow the Lord, obey the Lord. And by the way, this is of great advantage to you. If the leaders are serving with joy in their hearts for you, guess what? It's, it's a win-win. We all are blessed. It's a double blessing. They are blessed getting to watch you follow Christ and grow in Christ and serve Christ and glorify Christ. And listen, they are blessed and you are blessed because you are growing in Christ and drawing nearer to Christ and looking more like Christ and bringing more glory to Christ. Do you see how this works? This is all, all, all about the glory of God and the good of his people and the advancement of the gospel. And I'll just close with this thought, listen. John in 3 John chapter 1, verse 4 says this, there is no greater truth than knowing, listen, no greater joy, excuse me, than knowing that your children are walking in the truth. And I would just add to this, listen, there is no greater joy as a child, a child of God, than to be walking in the truth. And as I just think about that verse and John as a leader of the church and the joy he saw in, in the church family, walking in the truth faithfully, following the leaders as they point to Christ and they push people on in their pursuit of him. Listen, may this be the joy of our lives and of our church 
Because we know, listen, that when we walk in the truth, it is for the ultimate joy of our Father who is in heaven. Amen?